Okay, so we are hopefully wrapping up Matthew 6 today, God willing. And last time we saw uh, verses 19 to 24, how we cannot serve two masters. And specifically, we cannot serve both God and wealth. We referenced how the... uh, the mentioning of the I here is a Jewish idiom, and it was speaking of generosity and um, the degree to which a person is greedy and clings on to their wealth. And it is such that if a person is uh, negative in that regard, the I is bad, verse 23, the whole body will be full of darkness. If you are somebody who is focused on the wealth of this life, then you are not a person who is focused on Christ. You're not walking as you should. And it's a tough passage for many to hear in this day and age. And if you think that was tough, we come now to verses 25 to 34. And in one sense, it's a simple passage. I don't think there's any... Anything here that is hard to, for us to understand? I don't think that, you know, it's not like we have to understand, you know, what's this idiom about the eye? What does that mean? There's nothing like that here so much. It's really a fairly simple passage. The, the analogies are easy to understand, but boy, does it cut our hearts. And as I said to you last week, it isn't my job to bring up thousands of other passages to try and give you a more nuanced and balanced approach. I'm really called to preach this passage and to allow it to make you as uncomfortable as it needs to. And thus we will uh, go through and see what it is that Christ is saying here. Just to add before we get into the specifics, notice how last time we... I think verse 19 is a kind of distinct section from what goes on before. In chapter 6, generally, it was when you do this, whenever you do this, and it was prayer, and it was giving, and it was fasting. When you do this, do it this way. How do we exercise practically our righteousness? Verse 19 doesn't have the whens or whenevers. It just, don't do this. Do not store up. And then it gives an analogy. If you, if you look ahead to chapter 7, it's exactly the same. Do not judge. And then it gives an analogy, the famous one about the speck in your brother's eye and the log in your own eye. We'll be dealing with that passage next time. Suffice to say that these verses today, verses 25 to 34, it sits in the middle of this section. In one sense, it follows on from um, from verses 19 to 24. You'll see the connection in that, that those in these two passages in a while. But but beyond that, it seems to be highlighted. It sticks out in the middle of this section, and we're going to conclude today with the reference to seeking first His kingdom and. His righteousness. Notice the double repetition of his. It's his kingdom and it's his righteousness. What have we seen so far in the Sermon on the Mount? That so much of the focus is on the kingdom and on his righteousness. And we've seen that again and again. And it was particularly clear in chapter 5 and um, verse 10. Blessed are those who've been persecuted for the sake of righteousness for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom goes to the ones who pursue righteousness even in the face of persecution, which, by the way, as we said, is inevitable if we are people who are pursuing righteousness. So this passage, all that to say, this passage is given a, a priority and a focus and it is an important passage and it sums up so much of what has been said thus far. So verse 25. 
For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Now, there's two ways to understand the this reason. It could be that the this reason is pointing to what follows, which is the examples of the birds and of the grass. That could be the reason. Or it could link back to the previous section, which is what immediately follows, which is this principle that you can't serve two masters. And I think the analogies kind of have a, there's a little, I think that the the way it naturally reads is that the analogies that come after aren't necessarily the reason that he's referring to, but rather the reason is the previous verse. And I want you to see the connection between the two, okay? If you are a person who is obsessed with money, with wealth, with comfort, with belongings... You're not serving God. And therefore, you are going to spend your time and your energies being concerned, being concerned about the things of this life. That's what's going to happen. And so because, for the reason that if you are like that, you are not serving God, therefore there comes the command... Don't be worried about this life. Don't be worried about your life. Don't worry about what you're going to eat, what you're going to, what you're going to wear, what you're going to drink, because there's more to life than that. Now, one other little thing I need to mention as an aside, because I think that this verse can be misused. And that is this. The legacy that I'm reading from here says, do not be worried. And I like that, and that is a good translation. Many other translations say, do not be anxious. And I just want to make reference to that, because there are people who, and maybe in our midst, I don't even know, who have been diagnosed with, you know, oh, you have anxiety. And Christians can tend to go down all sorts of different avenues at this point, And I just want to be clear to you about what I think um, about this matter. Um, There is a medical condition that is called anxiety. And sometimes people have symptoms that will be diagnosed as anxiety. And they are not worrying about anything in particular at the time they have these symptoms. In other words, you can have a person who's struggling to sleep and they're not saying, oh, I'm really worried about my job. I'm worried about how much I'm going to earn. What happens if I lose my job? And what happens if I don't get this contract? And what happens? And they're lying awake at night and their heart's beating and they can't sleep. But other people do have those symptoms, their heart's beating and they can't sleep, but they're not focusing on these things. And I think that sometimes in the church, we we do a disservice by bundling this passage in its entirety with the medical condition of anxiety. But in other people, other churches will sever that connection altogether. Well, here is a medical condition and it's got nothing to do with people worrying. Well, there's a reason that the medical condition is called anxiety, and that's because it's really often associated with people being anxious. And that tends to lead to those symptoms. So I think that, you know, in our circles, there is always this tendency to want everything to be black and white. Everything has to be, this is right, this is wrong, this is clear, do this, don't do that. And so often the Bible is. Sometimes in the world, we take these black and white principles and how we apply them isn't always clear. Personally, if I'm counselling someone and they are somebody who has been diagnosed with anxiety, I am always going to be looking to see if they are not obeying this command and they're worrying about something that they shouldn't. And then I can minister to them through the word of God, including this passage. 
At the same time, I am not going to presume that to be the case and pass judgment on them. I'm going to be asking them, are you worrying about things? And if they assure me, no, I'm really not worried about what I'm going to eat and eat, drink. I'm trusting God. I don't know why I'm having these symptoms. Then I'm not going to judge them. And I think that it's helpful for us to have this kind of balanced approach. It doesn't mean that we're compromising. It doesn't mean that we're not seeing the black and whites in Scripture. What it means is, is that we're taking these principles and that we are applying them in a way that is fair and even-handed in the complexities of life before us. One other thing in this regard is this. If you do have a person who has terrible anxiety, and it is connected to worrying about things they shouldn't worry about, and they are perhaps taking medication to essentially drug out the intensity that they feel in life in that regard, I think we need to be cautious just to come along and say, well, the Bible says that's a sin. Stop sinning. Here's the verse. Because what you're doing is you're taking somebody who is at their most fragile and you're just saying, well, this is easy. There it is. Deal with it. And let's fling a few Bible verses. Do these verses apply to people who are worrying about things because their faith isn't strong? Oh, absolutely. Should we minister with these verses? Oh, absolutely we should. But that does not negate that some sheep are smaller and more fragile than other sheep. What good shepherd is going to treat all of his sheep the same, even when they are wounded, even when they are broken, and even when their state is their own fault? The job of the shepherd is to make the sheep healthy. And it concerns me and it bothers me that in our circles far too often, we find pastors just rebuking sheep from scripture in a way that is perfectly accurate, but without taking them by the hand gently and patiently. patiently leading them to a place of wholeness. I know how long it takes me to learn things. I know how, how often I'm told things and I don't see them. I know the incredible patience that people have to have often in dealing with me. How irresponsible and hypocritical would it be of me demanding that everybody else in, under my care sees things the way that I see them immediately? That isn't how life works. So when I see a fragile sheep who is struggling with anxiety, and yes, it is to a large degree their own fault, and yes, they are choosing to worry, and yes, that worry is sinful, that does not mean that I don't take that gentle, precious sheep and speak to them gently and help them take those first steps that they might eventually become strong. And no, that doesn't mean that we don't call sin, sin. Of course we call sin, sin. It just means that sometimes rebuking doesn't have to be a harsh word. Don't we always think of rebuke as being a harsh word? Oh, I've got to rebuke that person. And immediately we're visualizing someone kind of slapping them around the face and, you know, ah, rebuking you. You know? Sometimes rebuking someone in sin means coming alongside them, hearing them rant and rave about the unfairness as they perceive it, crying alongside them and then saying, maybe this isn't the right way. Should we have a look at what scripture says? How can I help you do this? What are the, what are the hurdles and the hindrances to you being able to do this? How can we serve you as you seek to live your life in a way that looks more like this 
that we're reading about unless like you are living right now. That qualifies as rebuke too. And I suggest that it is the way in which we should rebuke more often. That is not to say that there aren't people who are stubborn and willful in their pride and need to be spoken to far more strongly and firmly. A hundred percent. And I think it's equally a problem when we take the willfully proud and we speak gently and and say, oh, well, you know. And sometimes we do need to do that (laughs) and slap them around the face. And that, my friends, is one of the difficult things about shepherding. And yes, as someone who's a pastor, it falls on me more. But we are all called to disciple, and so it falls on us all to some degree. And that is to discern and to say, you know, how do I deal with this person that I'm trying to help? Do they need to be spoken to strongly and firmly? Do they need a gentle hand to lead them? And friends, we are never qualified for this task in one sense but in another sense we are because we have the Holy Spirit indwelling us so we pray to God and we ask that he would give us wisdom with regards to how we deal with people that we would deal with them while seeking God's wisdom and not react emotionally not to deal with people on the you know so often we deal with people on the basis of how much are they annoying me rather than what is the best way to help them and then pray to God for forgiveness when we get it wrong which of course at times we always will so all of that is to say that when we are dealing with the issue of worry I don't see Jesus saying this as if to say oh you're worrying don't be so stupid but rather he's speaking to people who are prone to worry And, and guys let's be frank aren't we? When we hear these words, don't worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body what as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? When we read those words, are we not convicted? Right? I mean, you know, you go to a store to buy, buy a bottle of water because you won't drink the water out of a tap. And then you get to the store, and am I going to have distilled? Am I going to have purified? Am I going to have mineral? Am I going to have spring? And what is even the difference between them all? And I think that there is a place where it's perfectly wise for us to be careful about what we eat. I think one of the greatest problems that American society faces physiologically is that less and less people are bothered about what they put in their bodies and their the healthcare system is is under a greater burden because of it so i'm not saying don't don't care about the quality of food that you eat oh you know we we just did we just did matthew 6:25 at church so it doesn't matter what i eat let me just eat, eat all the the processed food i like that's not what i'm saying what the text is speaking about is it speaking about the reality where you say, if I don't make this decision, my family may not have food tomorrow, next week, next month. And we live in such a prosperous society that most people have never actually had to worry about that. I know that because of the decision to go into pastoral ministry, for my family and I, we've experienced that countless times. How are we going to get through until the end of the month, the end of the week? What have we got in the cupboards? How are we going to get by? It's a healthy thing to do that. I, I really mean that. It's really healthy for you to have periods of your life where you don't know how you're going to get by. It's really healthy for you to have run out of money and your car breaks down. It's really healthy for you to be in a situation where some medical bill comes up and you don't know how you're going to make rent. Because for too many of us, we never experience those kind of things and this passage just doesn't resonate with us because we don't know what it really means to trust in God. 
For so many people in prosperous America, and this is going to change, I think, as the years go by, but certainly historically, there are so many people for whom they would get their check at the end of the month, they'd have more than enough money, and they put their offering in the, in the church, and, and the give they, you know, people traditionally did the tithe and the 10%, and most of you know where I stand on that, but they do that, and they think they've done their thing, and they still got their vacations, and their holidays, and their second home, and their nice car, and, and, and life isn't, pardon me, life isn't challenged or threatened, or, 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 or uh, you know, dislodged at all. They just get on with their lives. If you ever get a chance, read the biography of uh, George Muller of Bristol. There's a good one written by a guy called Dallymore that I would highly commend to you. George Muller was renowned as a man of prayer. And routinely at the orphanages that he ran, they would have no food for the children, and the children would gather for a meal, and there was none, and they would just get on their knees and pray. And you read through that book, and there is story after story after story of them kneeling for prayer, and somebody arrives with a car full of food for them all. And you're like, oh, I wish that we could see miracles like that today. Do you? Do you want to be on your knees praying for a meal to come when potentially you don't get that food? Do you? Because most Christians I meet don't want to be anywhere near that place. Most Christians I meet want to know exactly how much money they have coming in each month They want to have everything budgeted so they know exactly what they've got for disposable income. And they'll make sure that what they give is taken into account. So unless there's some dramatic thing, that they're going to not be put out in any way, shape or form. Most Christians I know want to make sure that they have the budget for their vacations. Most Christians I know want to have savings for if something goes wrong with their car or their home or for a rainy day. Most Christians I know want to make sure that they are from a young age putting aside money for retirement so that they know that they're not going to have any problems when they get to the point of their life when they can no longer work. Most Christians I know want to make sure that their medical emergency isn't going to mess their lives up. And most Christians I know are consumed by these things. That's just the reality of it, folks. And most of us wouldn't want to go within a thousand miles of being in a situation where we simply don't know if we're going to eat and we have to get on our knees and pray. And we are worse off for it. Why? Because life is more than food and drink and clothing. It is more than that. And that is where Jesus is taking us. Look at the birds of the air that they do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you being worried can add a single cubit to his lifespan? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe the lilies of the field, how they grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field which is alive today... And then tomorrow is thrown in the furnace. Will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Now, the analogies are simple, are they not? A bird doesn't say, hey, you know what? I need to make sure I have grain to eat next year. So let me take some of these seeds that are available to me and let me put them in the ground. So that the plants may regrow and my family may have a harvest next year. No bird does that. 
They just simply eat and on they go. Now you say, well, that's a terrible model for us to live by. What, we just, we just eat and eat and eat and eat? I mean, is that not what the entitled people are doing today? You know? You know, give me my programs and give me my welfare check and get rid of my student loans and give me everything that I need and let the government do it for me? Is, is that not that mentality? That's not the point of the passage, friends. Listen to what it is saying and not what it's not saying. It's saying, these birds aren't able to think that way. You are. And I think it's perfectly fine, just to balance what I said earlier, it's perfectly fine for us to have retirement funds. It's perfectly fine and irresponsible for us to save. It's perfectly fine and responsible for us to to plan and have financial planners even and make investments. And it is not only perfectly fine, it is absolutely necessary that if we are able to, that we go out to work. Paul, in writing to the church at Thessalonica, was concerned because some people were so convinced that the return of Jesus was going to be any moment. And there is a sense in which we must live like the return of Christ can come at any moment, because it can. It is what we call imminent. But they were so convinced that it was going to happen in their lifetime that they just stopped working. And they became a burden to other Christians. And Paul rebukes them. If you won't work, then neither shall you eat. So we're not saying, go be like the birds, eat whatever's around, don't worry about tomorrow, don't bother working, don't bother planting. Nobody's saying that. The birds aren't able to do that. They're not able to think and process in that way. What it's saying is this. That for simple creatures that cannot plan ahead, God the Father still feeds them. There is a a principle, a model, it's almost become a mantra at the moment amongst some of us here. Um, Jen and I say it together all the time, Michael and I say it together all the time. And And that is this principle that we do our due diligence and then we just trust God and we rest. That's what we do. And, and if we don't do our due diligence, then there is a danger that we become lazy. There's a danger that we don't do the work that we're supposed to do. We don't take care that we should take. We have been given and gifted the ability to work. We've been gifted with minds to think. We've been gifted with minds to plan. And we don't want to use this passage as an excuse to be lazy. We have to do our due diligence. But when we've done what we can, we don't worry about it. We just trust God. And that is what the passage is speaking about. Isn't it? The Father feeds them. And I love this last statement in verse 26. Are you not worth more than they? There's a balance to be struck here as well. I think one of the biggest problems that the church faces in this era is an anthrocentric approach to Christianity, which is a... A, a twisting of scripture at best. This idea that we as man are centered, that God is here for our needs, that God, you know, just does whatever we want and looks after us. And we are the, you know, we're the center of the universe and God just revolves around us. It's a, it's a demonic and destructive doctrine. And I think that generally speaking, I, I would agree with the statement of one of my friends from yesteryear who used to say to me, Anthony, I think the answer to low self-esteem is no self-esteem. And there's a lot of truth to that. Sometimes we feel really down and burdened because, oh, it's just not fair, all this stuff's happening. And often the reality is, is that really we think too much of ourselves and we think we deserve more than we do. But there is another side to it. We are mankind. We are the pinnacle of God's creation. The Bible is abundantly clear on that. And so, God has created other creatures, but he has not given them the ability to be saved, a soul that they can be saved. He's not given them the intellect or the capacities or capabilities that he's given to mankind. 
we are a higher level than the animals. And the Bible is very clear on this. And so if God is going to feed these birds who simply do all they can, will he not look after us? Is he not capable? It grieves me when Christians who are struggling financially do things like play the lottery. And you see it advertised all the time, don't you? There hasn't been a winner this week. The jackpot's going up. And statistically, you're more likely to be struck by lightning than to win the lottery. And of course, someone will win it. And it acts as a fantastic form of marketing and advertising so that you play it again. But what it's doing is it's a tax on poor people and it appeals to your greed and it appeals to, certainly for Christians, for when you don't trust God. God could take the poorest among us and make us rich overnight like that. God can turn our lives around in an instant, for better or for worse. We could have our whole lives going along and we could be struggling every day and then God just suddenly lets you meet someone one day and that person gives you a job and you get into that and suddenly you're like two years down the line and your whole life is completely different and all your struggles financially and all your worries, they're all gone. But equally, you could have all your savings and everything planned And everything in place and you know what you're going to do and you can be driving down the road and somebody can drive into you and suddenly all your savings, all your finances, your health, your plans, your future, gone in a heartbeat. There is no guarantee other than God. Do we believe that he is able to look after us? Surely he cares more for man than he does for birds. And yet these birds eat, and here they are. God is able to look after us. And then verse 27 is one of the truest statements in the world. It's so true that I hear unbelievers making this point all the time. And that is this. That who of you, by being worried, can add a single cubit to his lifespan? Now, cubits were a measurement of distance and not of time. It's just an expression. It's just saying, like, you're not going to live longer by worrying. And in fact, we know that the converse is true. We know that if we spend our lives getting stressed and worried, that actually it's more likely to shorten our lives in a variety of different ways. And so by being worried, we aren't going to resolve things. Now, To the unbeliever, they understand that truth to a certain point. The unbeliever understands, well look, if they're smart anyway, there's no point in worrying about this situation because it isn't going to resolve it. It might make me less capable of resolving it because I get too emotional. It might hinder my health even more. But I'm not going to resolve this situation by worrying. I need to just, you know... Do what I can and not worry. And that's as far as it goes with the unbeliever. But for us as Christians, it has a meaning on another level altogether. Do we believe that God is sovereign? Do we believe that everything that comes into our lives, every good thing and every bad thing, that God is sovereign over that? Do we believe that every hideous pain that we've been through, every event that was done to us, every traumatic experience, do we believe that God is sovereign? Do we believe that he's sovereign over every blessing and every circumstance of good in our lives? If we do, why would we worry about anything? 
This terrible thing has just happened. God's still sovereign? Yep. Well, there's no point in worrying then, is there? Because he's in control. This amazing thing has happened. No need to worry, God's still in control. Worry is an incredibly powerful tool because it shows us how deep our belief, our faith, our trust in the sovereignty of God goes. Again, this is not a doctrine of putting your feet up and saying, I ain't going to worry about anything. I'm just going to put my feet up on the porch, drink myself a beer and just chill. That's not what we're talking about. There is a place for hard work and due diligence. Of course there is. But there's not a place for worry. The next illustration is very, very similar. Why are you worried about clothing? Look at the lilies of the field. Grow. Do they, or how they grow? Do they not toil? They do not toil. They do not spin. I say to you, even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. As a kid, I didn't read much. Didn't read many books about, you know, stories and classic literature. If you said to me, hey, did you read that classic book when you were young? The answer's gonna probably be no. But I have books everywhere around me. And they were encyclopedias and they were nature books. And I loved animals. When I was a kid, I used to turn over the stones in the garden and watch all the little insects crawl out. And I'd be there with my book trying to look up what they are. I still remember Latin names of many different animals today from when I used to read them in in a book. My dad once went to uh, listen to a tape of music that he had and he played it and he found my voice where I'd recorded over the top reading out the specific biological statistics and details of, I think it was sea lions on that particular occasion. I'm fascinated by animals. And I tell you, this is so true. You look at nature and you see the handiwork of God. And you have birds with the most beautiful plumage. You have animals that swim so gracefully and can hold their breath. And and, and camels that can go however far without food and water. And we have just this, this majesty of creation. And you are greater. You are more worthy. And God cares for you more. And so it is presented to us. If God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown in the furnace. Do you see the emptiness of life? I mean, we have pretty empty lives, right? For an unbeliever, you're born, you get older, you suffer, you you get sicker and you die and poof, your life is like a breath. And everyone who's on the latter end of life is nodding and going, yep, it's just a breath. It just, it goes. But for a grass, was it the mayfly that lives for 24 hours? It's born, you know, it has an egg, it comes out of the egg, it's in the pupae, it it goes through its stages. I'm probably getting this all wrong. Apologies to any biologists. And, and, you know, and then, and then they mate and they, they lay eggs and then they die and it's done. One day, done, gone, over. Grass is like that. It grows, it gets dry, done, finished. You are more important. And then he says this, you of little faith. This is what I'm saying, friends. Look how it is. Look how it's structured. Here's the example of the birds. You're worth more. Here's the example of the grass. You're worth more. And what sits in the middle of all of that? Who of you, by being worried, can add a single cubit to his lifespan? It sits in the middle. It stands out. It's given prominence. And then we have you of little faith. You're worrying, my worrying, about the necessities of life. And they are necessities. Will not add to our lives and they expose our weak faith. I can remember being in one of the most deepest turmoils of my life that I've ever had to walk through. 
Life was such a struggle. In fact, it was going to get a lot worse, but I didn't know that at the time. At the time, it was the worst it could have been. And then it just kept getting worse and worse. And I was at my house and I was doing some, um, I was doing some work in the garden, putting down some paving slabs. And um, anyone who knows me knows that just that's not my wheelhouse. I was I'm clueless about anything practical like that. So a guy from, who kind of was vaguely connected to the church came over to help me. And he was a really baby Christian, if a Christian at all, you know. He really wasn't you know, strong in his faith at all. And we were talking about stuff that was going on. And he would be like, well, Pastor, why aren't you trusting God? And I was oh, you little weak Christian. What do you know? You have no idea what I'm going through. Man, he was on the money. The one of little faith exposed my little faith. And I had just preached some really good sermons. And those of you who know me, I don't say this about my sermons often. I'm, I am more dissatisfied with my sermons than anybody else in this room, I can assure you. Well, maybe my wife. But I'm, I'm one of the most dissatisfied. And I preached some really good sermons on the sovereignty of God. And, and they were good. You, you know, I don't know if they're even available now because they were done you know, decades ago in England. But... You know, if you listen, if I listen to them now, I'm pretty sure that'd be, that'd be some pretty solid sermons. And then God said, oh, you believe that, do you? Let's find out. And he proceeded to take away from me everything that I held dear. Everything I thought was rock solid. Everything I worked for. He just took it away. And week after week and month after month, I thought, this just cannot get any worse. And God said, got news for you, pal. And it got worse and worse and worse. And I wouldn't wish that kind of suffering on anybody, but boy did I learn how little I trusted God. I knew the theology. I knew, oh God is sovereign. I could preach all about his sovereignty. But you see, if you're worrying, then your theology of his sovereignty is head knowledge. And the the process of us maturing as Christians is is not just, and this is why, this is so crucial guys, when we talk about faith and belief, we're not talking about intellectual assent. I agree with that statement. There's one thing to say, I believe that Jesus died, I believe that he died for my sins, I believe that I shouldn't sin. I I intellectually agree with those things. It's another thing to have the trust in that. And there are so many people who, in this country over the last generation or so, have walked forward for an altar call while somebody plays the tune in a minor key and the emotions are, are there. And they've heard a sermon that stirs their heart. And they come forward and they say a prayer. I agree with this, I agree with this, I agree with this. And they think they're a Christian. But they haven't trusted in Christ. And that's why throughout the Bible we see the importance of trials. In that what trials do is they put us through the testing fire. And we find out if what we have is something that needs to be purified or something that wasn't ever of any value or worth. Or to put it another way, whether our faith was genuine or not. I went through a horrible period of years and years of trials. And somewhere in the middle of that, I remember watching a, a, an old pastor talking about, very emotionally talking about what Christ had done for him on the cross. And I had been through so much and my mind was spinning and I didn't even, I didn't want to be a pastor. I didn't want to be a Christian probably. I just wanted my suffering to end and that was about it. And I was rethinking everything. No doctrine that I held dear was now unchallengeable. And I remember looking at that old pastor talking about Christ on the cross and what he had done for us. And with tears streaming down my face, I said, that, I believe that, that I can't deny that. 
And God just took me through these trials and he stripped me bare and he, he burnt up everything that I put as peripheral things in the faith and he just tore them apart and I was left with nothing but the cross of Christ and I said, yes, that I believe. And yet I've watched other people that I've stood side by side with and worshipped God together who now would tell me to my face, I don't believe in God and I don't believe in Jesus. And they went through fire and it was burnt up and there was nothing remaining. Jesus is speaking to those who are of the kingdom. He's speaking to those who have repented, those who have trusted Those who want to know what he says, they don't want to go along with the status quo. And he's telling them, this is what it's going to look like to live a righteous life. And he's saying to them in a passage that is given prominence and is lifted up and stands central with all these other, this this structure around it. And it's here for us to see. And it's like, you can't add to your life by worrying. Don't worry, trust God. And folks, there is, there is so little that will mature us more in the faith than grasping this. If we can get our heads around the fact that God is sovereign, he is in charge, he has all authority, and just we trust him, then so many other things will fall into place. And how do you know if you trust him? Well, how much are you worrying? That's the giveaway. Right there. So verse 31, as we come to our crescendo, for all these things the Gentiles... Oh, sorry, verse 31. Do not worry then saying what we will eat or what we will drink or what will we wear for clothing. That command repeated, do not worry. For all of these things the Gentiles eagerly seek. Now remember the context. He's talking to Jewish believers... And he's talking to Jewish believers whose righteousness, them being genuinely saved as opposed to the Pharisees and those who follow the Pharisees, that their their righteousness is genuine and he's talking to them about how they live righteous lives that will distinguish them from those around them. And he says, look, the Gentiles seek these things. People who aren't saved seek these things. Guys, we, we can take this... Uh, as something that is really true for us today. If someone doesn't believe in a sovereign God, then they're going to be worrying about, oh, what am I going to do? What happens if this happens? What happens about that? And all of this, because they don't have a God to trust in. When we as Christians do the same, we destroy our witness. Because we're behaving like there isn't a God on the throne. And folks... There is a God on the throne. And that same God who is on the throne chose us and gave us life and he sustains us and looks after us. We are not just average regular people who are going to live and die. We are people who are going to live forever and have communion with our God who loves us and Christ who died for us so that we could live with him forever. And you're worried that somehow you're not going to eat? What is the worst that could happen, folks? I could be locked in a box with no food and no water and no way out. And I could die of starvation, I could die of thirst, and it could be horrible and miserable and painful. And you know what's going to happen then? I get to be with Jesus and never suffer ever, 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 ever again. And we're worried about what's going to happen if the check doesn't come in. And we're worried about what's going to happen if we don't have a big enough retirement fund. And we're worried about what's going to happen if the car breaks down. And some are so comfortable, they don't have to even worry about those things. Guys, if you don't worry because you trust in your riches, you are in a far worse situation than the Christians who don't have those riches and who worry. That was the previous passage. 
We must not be like the unbeliever. We must not be like the Gentiles because we have a belief in a sovereign God. Your heavenly Father knows that you need all of those things. Isn't that what we learned in the Lord's Prayer? Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed, may your name be glorified. May your kingdom come. May your will be done. Okay, now we can say, make sure that we're alive, uh, we get enough food for today so we can live again tomorrow. Why do we want to live tomorrow? Because I want to be a part of your kingdom coming and your will being done. I think that 95% of Christians should look at this passage and get on their knees and repent. We are so consumed with our lives and the things around us. And it's not about if you're rich or if you're poor. It's about trusting in a sovereign God and not living your life motivated by worries and what ifs. I have been told a lot recently, this is the safest thing to do in this situation. And this is the safest thing in that situation. Guys, you cannot go through your lives taking the safest option. How do you read your Bible? And read about the great people of God. Read the Davids of the Old Testament. And read about the apostles in the New Testament. And think, yeah, I'm really really motivated by those guys. I think I'm going to live the safest life possible. Really? One of my favorite things in Paul's life is when he's there at the end of Acts. And he's about to be shipwrecked. And he knows he's about to be shipwrecked and everyone's panicking and they're dying and they're there in the storm for day and night for several days and they're throwing everything overboard because they're trying desperately to stay alive. Everybody is petrified for their lives and it isn't for the split second. It's constantly for hour after hour without sleep. It was a mess. Paul in 2 Corinthians, he speaks about what he suffered for Christ and he says in that passage, shipwrecks. Second Corinthians was written before Acts 28 happened. In other words, he had other shipwrecks before this one. You know, there's that, that meme of, uh, I think it's from one of the pirate movies, where a guy's about to be hung and he looks to the guy next to him and says, is this your first time? And he's kind of paused like that with a shipwreck. He's, oh, first shipwreck, is it? Been here before. And there he is... And it's dark and there's a storm and there's, there's waves breaking over the bows and, and they're throwing stuff out to, to survive. And Paul's like, I know God's sovereign. Would you be cool in that situation? Don't think I would. And that's scary, you know. Because I know that my God loves me and he wants me to be mature. And he wants me to grow. And he wants me to change. And so he's probably going to put me through some stuff so that I get a little bit closer to that goal. Some of us can't handle being five minutes late for something and held up in traffic without worrying, let alone being on a shipwreck day and night. And for some of us, I think, if we're honest, those little things cause more worry than the big things. Some of us are perfectly capable of dealing with the most trying and difficult circumstances in life. And then we have some very minor inconvenience and we fall apart. Whichever you are, your father knows what you need. He's able to serve you. He's able to love you. He's able to give to you. And therefore, there's no purpose in worrying. And this is the command in contrast. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all of these other things will be added to you. His, his. It's his kingdom. It's his righteousness. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. That's the priority of our lives. No, you shouldn't all quit your jobs and go into full-time ministry. But yes, you should all consider your jobs to be ministry, because they are. 
No, you don't put your feet up and let everybody else work for you. You work hard and you help contribute to whatever way you can to whatever God's calling you to contribute. But the priority of your life is this. I am hungering and thirsting after your righteousness. And if you find yourselves locked in that proverbial box without food and water, and you get hungry and you get thirsty, your prayer should be, Father, may I hunger and thirst for your righteousness more than for food and for water. Make God the center of your life. Because when he's not, you compromise and you justify your compromises to get the things because you think they're necessities. He knows what we need. And he's perfectly capable of doing them. And it's not like, oh, 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 no, Anthony's not going to eat unless I, oh, no, I've I've dropped the ball. Oh, I hope he compromises and lies and cheats and and gets the food that way because I just can't do it myself. That's not God. God is perfectly able to provide us with things. And sometimes he makes us go without. And sometimes we go without for extended periods so that we learn to trust him and we see the state of our heart. And are we going to compromise while we're in a difficult situation? You're more likely to steal when you're hungry. You're more likely to be rude about your boss when he treats you badly. You're more likely to commit adultery when your spouse is mean to you. But none of these things are justified. We trust God in the midst of trials. And we seek his kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. Now let me just make a point here. This is talking in a general sense. We know from the book of Hebrews there will be times when Christians aren't clothed and they aren't fed. There have been times in history where Christians have starved to death. This is not a universal thing in that regard. But the point that is being made, I think, is abundantly clear. God knows what we need and he's able to provide it and we have a job. And what is our job? To above all else seek God's kingdom and his righteousness. To seek to be the most godly person that we are and to seek God's will to be done above our own. That is the purpose of our life. And we're to use our money to that end. We're to use our time to that end. We're to use our energies to that end. And therefore, we're not to worry. So... Very clearly at the end, now that he's made these points, it is obvious. So for the third time he says, do not worry about tomorrow. For tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of his own. And anybody who's now a financial planner is wishing this verse wasn't in the Bible. It is what it is, folks, and I've got to preach it. Does this mean that we don't have savings? Does this mean that we don't plan for the future? No, 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 no. What it means is this. It means you don't place your trust in those things. It's great to be responsible financially. If you're able to leave a legacy for your children financially, that's a great thing. If you can leave a legacy that stretches to your grandchildren, that's great too. It's not a a sin. It's not a bad thing. I don't think that to be godly, you literally have to give everything away to everybody else. But many of us won't accomplish those things, and we must never compromise ourselves trying. We must not make it the central focus of our life. When we rise in the mornings, our concern must not be, how, what am I going to accomplish? What work am I going to get done? What treasures can I build? But when we get up in the morning, we should remember that we stand under the eyes of a sovereign God. And our prayer should be, your kingdom come, your will be done. Lord, may I walk in righteousness 
to serve you. I pray that this may have rattled a few cages this morning, my own included. We need to not worry. We need to trust God. We need to seek his will above our own. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for this glorious passage. May we work it out in our lives day by day. I pray for any here who may now, having heard this, be tested by you in the near future. Lord, may there be empathy and compassion for those who suffer trials. But Lord, may we look to you, may we turn to you, and may we trust in you. May worry not be our companion, but a firm trust in you. Amen.